some things are worth fighting for. We all know this instinctively and intuitively, but to know when, where, how, and on what grounds to contend for something is a different question altogether. There is one matter that Christians must always contend for, and that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And throughout his life, Dr. R.C. Sproul contended for salvation by grace alone. On the day of Sproul's, Dr. Sproul's death, R.C. Sproul's death, John MacArthur recounted a story of when R.C. Sproul dramatically fought for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Sproul were in a conversation with a group of Protestants who were putting together a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Uh, they were informing Dr. Sproul and Dr. MacArthur what they were intending to say in the document, at which time R.C. Sproul recognized that they were leaving out some important words. For example, that word, alone. It was clear that the Protestants who were representing evangelicals in those discussions uh, were kind of doing so badly, and they were capitulating on a really important truth. They were undermining the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so recalling that meeting and what was occurring in that meeting, uh, John MacArthur writes about R.C. Sproul, Protestants who helped draft the evangelicals and Catholics together document were deliberately capitulating to the main Roman Catholic error and undermining the gospel itself. At one point, R.C. R.C. Sproul became so passionate in making his argument that he literally climbed on the table, making the plea on his hands and knees from the tabletop until each person on the other side of the table had made direct eye contact with him. There wasn't a hint of malice in the gesture, and everyone in the room understood that. The passion that motivated R.C. was his love for the gospel and his zeal for making sure that the message is proclaimed without compromise or confusion. R.C. Sproul, he was right to climb up on top of that table and to plead with his evangelical brothers and sisters not to capitulate on this error. He was contending for, what he was contending for was the difference between heaven and hell. So important is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that we must be prepared to make a passionate defense of it. That's what we see taking place this morning in our scripture text. In Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, the apostles of the church contend for the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, they were contending for the truth that we contribute nothing to our salvation, but that Jesus has done it all. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 923. Uh, and for those of you who have noticed in the bulletin that the scripture text that I mentioned that we're going to be looking at is much shorter than the scripture text I intended to preach on, that's because it is. We're going to look at the shorter text this morning. So Reinhard, brother, I'm sorry I sent you a very long outline yesterday. It's practically useless now. Forgive me, I'll try and help you along the way by giving you a better outline as we work our way through. But, <laughs> thanks, brother. Well, just, let, let me just think about, let's think about for a minute where we are in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 15. We've got 14 chapters on one side of 15, and then 15 to 28 to the end. A number of scholars have noted that we're actually right in the middle of the book. So there are about 12,000 words, a little more than 12,000 words, in Acts chapters 1 to 14, and there are 12,000 words or so in chapters 15 to 28. So we're right here in the middle. But how do we get to the middle? Well, Jesus has announced a program in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that his disciples are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, in those first 14 chapters, we, we've seen 
Uh, Jesus' disciples worked through that program. The gospel has gone out to Jerusalem. It's gone out to Judea, the surrounding area. It's gone out to Samaria. And last week, we concluded Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14. The gospel has entered that fourth phase of Jesus' program. And Gentiles are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 14, verse 27, just a little bit before our text, you'll see that Paul and Barnabas, they're recounting that all that God has done with them and that he's opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, here's the thing. When sinners are saved and they come into the church, life can be a little messy. It can create challenges. And when well-meaning and perhaps sometimes overzealous saints are involved, it can also get a little messy. And that's what we're seeing taking place in Acts chapter 15. It's, It's a mess right here in the middle of the book of Acts. And the mess is this, that some well-meaning, believing Christians are saying that you've got to add circumcision to your life as a Christian in order to be saved. That yes, Jesus' work saves us, but so does circumcision. So they're adding to Jesus' work. That's the challenge that's being faced in Acts chapter 15. And the apostles and the elders in the church of Jerusalem, they contend that no, salvation is by grace alone. It's by God's work alone, not our work. That's what we're going to see taking place in Acts chapter 15 as a council comes together and they make a decision on this matter. So, So two points. The main point of the sermon is this, that we are to contend for salvation by grace alone. And we're going to think about that under two headings. Contend, contend uh, from God's works, and contend, second point, contend from God's word. So we're going to look at how the apostles contend from God's works, and then we're going to see how they contend from the base of God's word. That's what we're going to be thinking about as we look at God's word together this morning. Take a look, let's begin with our first point, contend from God's work. And read with me just now the first five verses of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, beginning there in verse 1, just the first five verses. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Let's just stop there in our reading of God's word for now. If you take a look at verses 1 and 5, there are some parallel ideas there, aren't there? Right there at the end of verse 1, you see, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the contention of these men from Judea. And then when the apostles get to Jerusalem, you see that these believing, this believing party of the Pharisees, they're saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Circumcision is a, something of a synecdoche, synecdoche for the whole of the law, right? It's a part standing in place for the whole. So the argument in Antioch is that unless you're circumcised, you Gentiles, 
you can't be saved. Remember, there, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. Gentiles are everybody else, everybody who's not a Jew. Right? So they're, they're trying to add to the work of Jesus Christ, making a requirement upon their Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord. Th- th- that's what this debate, this contention is all about. It's about adding to Jesus' work. And notice that Paul and Barnabas, they have no small dissension. That doesn't mean that it was just a, a little quarrel. No, no, no. That means they had a lot of debate, vigorous debate, and it took a, a, a lengthy amount of time. I mean, beloved, let's recognize that serious and sincere theological conversation doesn't happen over texts or tweets or social media or blog posts. It often, working through difficult theological issues often takes a lot of time. So be careful about how you engage theologically in those smaller spaces. Real, significant, serious theological debate often takes a lot of words and lengthy conversation to work some things out. And, and notice that Paul and Barnabas see this as a very crucial area. They are, are fighting verbally tooth and nail. Uh, in, in love, I'm sure. But fighting tooth and nail to protect the truth. That, no, no. Salvation is by God's grace alone. And, and these, the travel log that we have here, when they're sent on, really in verses 3 and 4, it, it's not inconsequential. Notice what they do as they go. They're, they're telling others about the conversion of the Gentiles. They're arguing from God's work. They're arguing from God's work. He has saved Gentiles. And and this is going to be the way that other apostles, Peter really, develops the argument later on in the Jerusalem council. They're arguing that, look, this is what God has done. He's he's already saved the Gentiles. It's actually, the, the matter in one sense is already decided. This is what God has done. He's done it without circumcision. They're full believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're welcomed into God's church. It, the argument's kind of already over because of what God has done. That's something of what Luke is communicating here in these early verses. But we see as well that some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees rose up. Right? They're, they're arguing. It's interesting, isn't it, that that's the way Luke describes this party. Believers who are part of the party of the Pharisees. If you're wondering, wait, wait a minute, what, what are Pharisees do? Believing in Jesus. Well, Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. He believed in Jesus. Yes, some, some Pharisees were converting to and coming to the Lord Jesus Christ from salvation. And, and here we can also see that sometimes believers can go badly wrong, can't they? We're fallible. We're fallen. We, we can err. And, and so some, some brothers and sisters were, were making this error. You have to add to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You have to actually be a Jew. It's not enough, Gentiles. You actually have to become a Jew in order to be saved. That's kind of something of the idea here. Believers can go badly wrong, and so we need to patiently plead with them that no, salvation is by grace alone. That's what what R.C. Sproul was doing, right? He was pleading with his fellow believers. Guys, you're omitting this word. It's a significant word. It protects our salvation and the work of Jesus Christ alone. We're not adding our works to it. Sometimes we have to plead with our our fellow brothers and sisters uh, about matters even closely related to the gospel like this. So, so we see that there's this debate, and Paul and Barnabas, even on their way to Jerusalem, they're arguing from the ground of God's work. Look at what God has done. He's saved them. And of course, there's this opposition. Now, to, let, let's take up verses 6 to 18. And actually, let's not do that. Let's take up verses 6 to 11. No, 6 to 12. Sorry, I'm changing my mind. 6 to 12. And here we're going to see that Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they're again arguing from the ground of God's 
work. That salvation is by grace alone. So they're sent up for this council there in Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them and among the Gentiles. Well, in verse 6, we get kind of the official start of what's often been known as the council in Jerusalem. Some people refer to it as the consultation in Jerusalem because the church in Antioch, right, is asking for help on a tricky theological issue. They're asking for help from a more mature church uh, in Jerusalem. And, and that's something that we should keep in mind as a church family. We, we have uh, autonomy as a local church, right? There's not a, another body that's uh, giving down, handing down rulings upon us as a church family. Uh, we, have, we have the ability to have theological conversations among ourselves. So we've got autonomy and ability. We even have the authority to make some theological decisions among our church family. But we ought not be arrogant, well, we, we might actually need help from other local churches in thinking through some difficult theological issues. It's one of the reasons that I personally develop relationships with pastors uh, throughout the week here in the area. It's one of the reasons that I have some of the same guys turn up and preach here at our church family every year. So in, in May, Garrett Connor, he comes to preach to us from La Plata Baptist Church in La Plata, Maryland. Uh, in June, Deepak Reju uh, comes to preach to us from Capitol Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., uh, and every year in November, Adam Polk comes to preach to us from Redeeming Grace Baptist Church in, uh, in, in Maryland. So, so year after year, these same three brothers are, are turning up and preaching, and hopefully that cultivates a relationship with them as pastors and us as a congregation and our congregations together. So that someday, if we face some difficult theological decision that the elders and maybe we as a church body need help in thinking through there are other faithful local churches, that we can, we can ask about, hey, brothers, can you help us think through this particular issue. Uh, so, so while we have the authority, the autonomy, the ability to make those decisions, we, we ought to also be on guard against arrogance and humbly ask for help when we need it. So that's what the church in, in Antioch has done. Now down through the years, there has been no little debate on this debate here uh, in the church uh, in Jerusalem and its ecclesiastical implications. Uh, denominations have developed uh, in, in large part, develop their church governance in large part to what we see going on here. So, for example, our, our Presbyterian brethren have taken this model of the Jerusalem Council and they've developed their general assembly every year. And I just want to say that what's going on here is unique in the course of redemptive history. It's, it's unique in the course of redemptive history because, number one, they're deciding the grounds of salvation. They're, they're deciding the question of, of why or how are people saved? Are they saved by Jesus' work plus our work? 
Or, or is it just Jesus' work alone? So they're, they're making that crucial question in redemptive history. They're, they're making a decision on that. Number two, it's unique because the apostles are there. With all due respect to my Presbyterian brethren, and they know this too, right? There aren't apostles turning up to their general assemblies. Uh, the apostles, by God's grace, have been called home to the Lord. Uh, so we, we just don't have apostles at assemblies like that taking place today. Uh, and they're also deciding the question about the Gentiles, right? W what's going to happen in God's salvation program? Are Gentiles included in the people of God or not? So what we see taking place here is a, is a really unique event in redemptive history. So, so, so that's what's happening here. They're, they're deciding some of those questions. And notice that there's much debate again. There's a lot of debate in, in Antioch, and now there's a lot of debate in Jerusalem. And now the apostles and the elders are going to start to weigh in. And notice how Peter weighs in. He stands up. And he says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's Peter talking about? And when are those early days? I mean, this is pretty early in the life of the church, right? Well, if you were to, to run back to Acts chapters 10 and 11, you would remember that Peter preached the gospel. He was made to preach the gospel, right? He was made to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius and a house full of Gentiles. The Lord gave him a vision, sent an angel, uh, sent angels to Cornelius and his men, and dragged Peter to Cornelius to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit, and Gentiles were converted, and they were saved. And those were the early days. Uh, some scholars think that this Jerusalem council that we're seeing here in Acts 15 took place 10 years after those early days. Uh, so Peter, he was in those early days also criticized. And in fact, he was criticized by a circumcision party and he was made to report to the church in Jerusalem. So he's kind of reminding them of what's already happened, right? Guys, remember God's work in the past, in the early days. Remember what he has done before. That's what he's doing now. That's kind of Peter's argument. And what's interesting is that the church in Jerusalem, when Peter reports back in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, we're told that the assembly falls silent. It's like they, they accept what's going on. And they then confirm, they affirm that yes, God has granted repentance that leads to life for Gentiles. That's what God has done. They, they accepted that testimony in the past, and Peter's reminding them that of that again here. And notice that they fall silent again, right? That they seem to be remembering, ah, 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 yes, this is how God has worked in the past. It, it's clear now that he's working again here in our presence. So Peter's arguing, he's contending for salvation by grace alone from God's work in the past, reminding them of what he's done and pointing to it, helping them to see that that's what's happening here in the present as well. But, but just notice some of these sweet phrases that Peter uses to explain God's work. You see there in, in verse 9 that he made no distinction between them and us. That, that's what happened. That's what was said in Acts chapters 10 and 11. That God made no distinction in how Jews and Gentiles were saved. But notice what Peter says. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Do you have an unclean heart? I mean, I think we, we all do, don't we? We all know that. We know that there is sin and there's darkness and there's dirtiness in our hearts. Do you want to have a clean heart? Well, you can't clean your heart. You can't purify it. I said this to a, a beloved relative yesterday. I was standing in the hospital. He's having heart issues. He's, he's having trouble with his, his heart monitor, or his, sorry, his pacemaker. And, and I said to him, I said, Bob, you, know, you, you can't. You can't fix your heart. 
You, you can't reach in and do that surgery yourself. You need a qualified doctor to step in there and to fix the problems that are going on. The same is true. God is the one who has to fix your heart and he can make it clean. Friend, if you know your own heart, then you know that it's stained with sin and that you know that you need it cleansed and God can do that. He sent his one and only most beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that you've not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus has done the work. He's laid his life down. He bore in his body on the tree the punishment that's due to our sins. And what what did Jesus say when it was all done? He said, it is finished. Friend, there's nothing else that needs to be done. Jesus has finished the work. He was laid in the tomb and then three days later, God raised him from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners is acceptable in God's sight. God has accepted Jesus' work. And the only thing that we need to do to receive salvation, to receive salvation is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. We abandon our sin. We abandon our trust in ourselves and our good works. And we trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Oh, friend, would you turn from your sin and receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and He can purify your heart. Remember the, the words that we sang earlier? For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, friend, have your heart purified today by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, notice that Peter, he, he not only says wonderfully that they've had their hearts made pure, right? Because, because Jews are, are often, at least in an Old Testament context, they're often thinking about, oh, the Gentiles, they're, they're unpure. They, they give themselves to a lot of unclean things. And Peter's saying, no, God has made them clean. He's purified their hearts. But Peter, then, he, he actually challenges his hearers there in verse 10. Do you see that? Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. You see what Peter is saying? Is, Brothers, why are you doing this to your fellow Gentiles? They can't keep the law. We couldn't keep the law. That's why we needed Jesus. He kept the law for us. We trust in Him. And then Peter, he kind of reverses a claim there in verse 11. It's a really fascinating way he puts it. Do you, do you see what he says? But we believe, thinking about we Jews, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. In other words, what Peter is saying is, look, fellow Jews, if we're to have any hope of salvation, we've got to be saved in precisely the same way that the Gentiles are saved. We've got to be saved by faith alone, by, by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If we Jews have hope of salvation, it's being saved in the same way that our Gentile friends are saved, by grace alone. Peter's saying... That keeping the law of Moses, it counts for nothing in salvation. God's grace is everything. The point is that circumcision counts for nothing in salvation. The law, it's useless to save us. It's useful for godliness, but it's useless to save us. God's grace is needed. As we saw there in verse 12, the assembly, they, they fall silent. So Peter, he's reported on that past work. And then Barnabas and Paul, they report on God's work as well. You see there in verse 12, the assembly, they fall silent, and they listened to Paul, Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Look, they're, they're pointing to God's powerful and mighty work. 
Now remember the purpose of signs and wonders in the book of Acts. The purpose of signs and wonders is to confirm the, the message that's been communicated and received. Right? That the gospel has been heard and believed and received. And a sign and wonder is poured out, often the Holy Spirit, to show, yes, that, that this is what has taken place. The gospel is true and it's been truly received. And, and part of what Barnabas and Paul are pointing out to this church in Jerusalem is, hey, the Gentiles... They've had the same experience concerning God's signs and wonders as you have. I mean, remember back all the way back to, to Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost in a mighty sign and wonder, right? And so what, what Paul and Barnabas are saying is, hey guys, you remember that work that God has done, that sign and wonder that God has done among you? He's done it among the Gentiles as well. So if you want to invalidate the signs and wonders done among the Gentiles, that's actually going to call into question the signs and wonders that God has done among you as well. No, no, no. God has worked mightily among us, and He's worked mightily among the Gentiles. Well, this is how Peter, and Paul, and Barnabas are contending from the ground of God's work. He has saved. He's worked mightily. He's performed signs and wonders. He's made no distinction. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. So we, we contend from God's work as it's evidence in life. But we also contend from God's word. And that's what James does. That's what James does in verses 13 to 21. Let me read for now just 13 to 18. Acts chapter 15, verses 13 to 18. We're beginning this second point. Contend for salvation by grace alone from God's word. James, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, that's his uh, Hebrew name, Simeon. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet, the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Well, notice here that James is contending from Scripture, from God's Word. I, I love it. I do love it that sola scriptura is kind of the last argument uh, in, in the case here that's taking place in the Jerusalem Council. What is it that is finally going to decide the matter? Well, it's going to be Scripture. And that's true for us today. So as theological controversies arise today, what, what do we need to do? Finally, at the end of the day, we have to go back to Scripture. God's Word is sufficient for helping us discern these matters. It's inerrant. It's infallible. God alone uh, speaks through His Word and He makes these matters clear. Well, James there, as I said, in verse 14, he, he identifies Peter by his Hebrew name. And, and notice what he does. He says, look, remember Peter's testimony. Remember how he, he contended for God's work among the Gentiles? Well, well, guess what, brothers and sisters? The words of the prophets agree. And then he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Um, if, if you were to go back and read Amos chapter 9 in your Old Testament, you'd probably see some word differences uh, from what James quotes here. James is quoting from the Septuagint, which was a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, so that's going to account for some of the word differences there that we see in our, in our English uh, translations here. But James, 
He's quoting from Amos chapter 9. He's probably alluding as well to some other prophets. But he's saying, look, this, this was predicted by, by God the Father through the Scriptures. And, and what he's saying here is he's saying that, that God has, through the Lord Jesus, restored the tent of David that has fallen. Right? The resurrection of Jesus is supremely the way in which the, the ruins were rebuilt and restored. And, and not only that, James is saying... Uh, that, that Amos was prophesying, predicting that the, the remnant of mankind, that is Gentiles, they were going to be received into that tent of David, that family of God, the, the people of God. And notice that they are received in as Gentiles. They're not received in as assimilated Jews. No, no, no. It's the, the remnant of mankind who seeks the Lord and all the Gentiles. The Gentiles are called by my name. And the Lord has made these things known from of old. This is a really old story. It's not a new plan of God. It's His long, old, established plan. Their experience of it, sure, sure, it, it was new, but God's establishment of it took place long ago. This is why it's, it's wrong to, to burden, to trouble, and to order the Gentiles to receive circumcision. This is why it's wrong to think that it's part of the means of salvation. And take a look there. At verses 19 to 21. This is James's judgment. After his contention, this is James's conclusion. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, a, a lot of um, people, a lot of people pit uh, James and Paul against one another, right? As though James would say that, yes, we're saved by grace, but also we need to incorporate our works into salvation. We will say that, the Roman Catholic Church in particular, on the basis of James chapter 2. But here... James is agreeing with Paul and Peter, by the way, that salvation comes by grace alone. No, no, we shouldn't trouble our Gentile brothers and, and add to add the work of circumcision as necessary for salvation. So just as Peter exhorted the council not to burden the Gentiles there in verse 10, so James's judgment is that they should be, not be troubled in verse 19. And, and recognize that, brothers and sisters. When you add to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are burdening. You are troubling your fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, you're, you're making following the Lord far more difficult for them. So they, they should not be made to take the sign of circumcision in their flesh, nor be ordered to keep the law of Moses. Gentiles who turn to God in faith are not saved by the law. They're saved by grace. Now, what we have in these verses, in verses some 20 and 21, is commonly known as the apostolic decree. And we are, Lord willing, should Jesus tarry. We're going to unpack that next week in, in greater detail. But let me just try and head some questions off at the pass. Let me just tell you what I think James is saying here. In the main, what, what I think James is saying here is that the Gentiles, they need to abstain from pagan worship festivals. All four of these things are associated with pagan worship festivals. So, so they don't have to become Jews to be saved. But they also cannot participate in pagan worship festivals. 
They, they worship the Lord Jesus now. And it's important for the Gentiles to abstain from pagan worship festivals because grace, it calls us on to godliness and gentleness with the consciences of fellow believers. Right? So, so this reference to uh, the law being read in the synagogues every week it is revealing to us that, that actually some of these things actually did occur in the law. So sexual immorality, obviously, right? You can't worship idols, obviously. But also the, the blood uh, and the animal strangulation. All of these things happened in pagan worship festivals. Of course, they worship idols. Uh, sexual immorality, there'd be cult prostitutes there at pagan temples. Uh, they would make food based out of blood. And then they would, they would strangle the animals because they believed that that particular form of death uh, would credit, would, would excite the gods more. But these things actually also turn up in Leviticus chapters 17 and 18. And so Jews are, are hearing these things read in the law every week. And if Gentiles are to turn up to these pagan worship festivals, uh, that's going to create distance between the fellowship of, of these believers, of Jews and Gentiles. It, it would kind of grate on their consciences. So what James is asking is for these brothers not only to abstain from these sins. You, you can't, can't worship idols. And you certainly can't be sexually immoral. But you, you can't participate in these pagan worship festivals as well. That's going to harm your fellowship with your fellow believers as well. The law, uh, though useless, as I said, for salvation, is useful for our sanctification. The law, these things occur in the law in Leviticus 17 and 18. Uh, the law is, is a guard to keep us from sin. The law is a guide to show us the path of righteousness. And the law is supremely a guardian and a tutor to lead us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so James is saying, uh, these Gentile brothers, they, they, need, they need to live in godliness and in gentleness toward the consciences of their fellow believers. So brothers and sisters, as, as, as we think about this passage, I want us to think about a few applications of how we need to contend for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the, on the basis of, of Scripture. We've already thought about how, how we as a church maybe need to have relationships with fellow churches as we might face thorny theological issues. But we need to contend for salvation by grace alone. When, when there is a challenge to salvation by grace alone, we must actually contend. The church has had to contend in every age, right? Peter had to contend in Acts chapter 11 for the salvation of the Gentiles by grace alone. Uh, the, the apostles are here contending for salvation by grace alone in Acts chapter 15. In, in the Reformation era, right, the church recovered the gospel by contending for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And there are still contemporary challenges today to the gospel. Some are small, they occur even within our own hearts and within our church family at times. And some of them are larger and have larger movements attached to them. So, so what might be some ways in which... Uh, some examples of adding to salvation by grace today. And let me just use the, the language of verse 5 there. Right? The, the language of, sorry, verse 1. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So, so what would be some things that we might say? Unless X, you can't be saved. So, so for example, unless you have a quiet time, right? unless you read the Bible and pray every day, you can't be saved. And that might be a, a really minor way we do that. Um, unless you're married and have kids, you cannot be saved. Or uh, unless you fight for social justice, you cannot be saved. Or unless you're in favor of reparations, you cannot be saved. Unless you are sexually pure, you cannot be saved. Uh, unless you're theologically reformed, you cannot be saved. 
Unless you speak in tongues or have the, the gifts of the Spirit, the charismatic gifts of the Spirit to heal somebody, you cannot be saved. Unless you get the jab, you cannot be saved. Unless you don't get the jab, you cannot be saved. Unless you're a Republican or a conservative, you cannot be saved. Uh, unless you obey your parents, you cannot be saved. Uh, unless you give to the church in tithe, you cannot be saved. Unless you serve in Sunday school, you cannot be saved. I mean, we could keep going on, but you, you get the point. All of those are additions to the grace of God. None of them are required for salvation. Some of them are clearly wrong-headed and others. Others might be good and godly pursuits, right? We should pursue sexual purity, right? But that's not the grounds for salvation. We should read our Bibles and pray every day, but not the grounds for salvation. Only God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, which we receive by faith, is necessary for salvation. And sometimes we're fearful, and sometimes we need to be spurred on to contend for salvation by grace alone. It's what we read in Jude 3, right? Jude, the brother of James, said this to Christians. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints, to the saints. Though the maintenance of the gospel does not finally depend upon us as individual Christians or even as a church, Though the maintenance of the gospel does not finally depend upon us, God is pleased to use churches like ours to maintain the gospel and Christians like us to maintain the gospel. But if we are to be a means that God is pleased to use, then that means we must be prepared to contend and to actually contend when the time comes. So brothers and sisters, you need to lovingly say to family members who when you ask, so, so why do you think the Lord will receive you into heaven. And, and they say, well, you know, I've, I've done a number of, of good works in my life, and I'm sure that's going to count something for me in heaven. Well, we need to be prepared to say, I'm, I'm sorry, friend. I'm sorry, family member. It's Christ's work alone that saves us. It's not our work. It's Jesus' work alone. Uh, I just think of my, my sister kind of made this point to, to her husband about his just physical experience. Just, uh, she told me about this on the phone yesterday. So encouraged. So my sister's husband was in a terrible accident probably 15 months ago. He was driving a mail truck, uh, and it was crushed and caught on fire, and bystanders pulled him out. He was hell of, uh, medevaced to a hospital, and uh, he turned up just this past week to a doctor's appointment, uh, and uh, the nurse said, I, I remember your case. I remember when you, you came in, and I'm honestly surprised that you're here today. And, and he said, um, he, he's not a believer in the Lord Jesus, and he said, I, I'm just stubborn. In other words, I've kind of willed myself to this day. And that's when my sister said, no, honey, God saved you. Other people pulled you out of that mail truck. The, the doctors operated on your stomach for two weeks and your legs for six. The reason you're here today is because other people and God himself has worked and intervened in your life to bring you to this day. Well, that's what we need to say to, to our friends and family who are trusting themselves. You're not going to pull yourself out of the flaming mail truck. Somebody else has to do it. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to pull you out of hell and to bring you into heaven. So you need to trust in him alone. It's God's grace alone to you by which you will be saved. That's what we need to plead with our friends and family members to believe. We need to be prepared to contend in our personal conversations for the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ and to delight in it. And we need to recognize as well another implication or application for our lives. 
is that we have one message for all people. It's grace and grace and all of God's grace. Our message is grace for everyone. Jews are saved by grace. Gentiles, most of you sitting here today, you are saved by grace. The wealthy are saved by grace. The poor are saved by grace. White, black, brown, people of every skin color are saved by grace. Um, Addicts are saved by grace. Adulterers are saved by grace. Politicians, if you can believe it, are saved by grace. Lawyers as well are saved by grace. One message for all people. And the people who kind of have it all together in their life, maybe don't have any kind of significant challenge that we can see on the outside, well, they're saved by grace too. It's all by grace. The old are saved by grace. The young are saved by grace. This is our message. Parents, this is your message to your children. When they are discouraged, they disobeyed again. You need to tell them you're not saved because of your obedience to mom and dad. You're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is grace to be found in Jesus. He can save you. Run to Him. Parents, this is your message to your children. We preach grace. It's our message to our unbelieving friends and family. It's our message to one another. We've sinned and stumbled again. Brothers and sisters, we get in through grace. As one uh, brother so wonderfully told me, if you don't get in by grace, you don't get in at all. It's true. God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope. We get in through grace We continue on in grace, and we make it home by grace. We should conclude. This chapter is not only the center, not only at the center of the book of Acts, it has its pulse on the central theme of the book of Acts, doesn't it? I mean, what is going to happen in the mission of the Lord Jesus if this message of salvation by grace doesn't continue on from this point forward? The salvation plane, as it were, would stall out and it would crash and burn, and Acts would end here. The story of the Christian church in some ways would end here if we're simply adding things to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this chapter we see as we contend the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's what fuels our passion on to make Jesus known. And so as we contend for salvation by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we're we're protecting the content of our witness and our very hope of salvation. Friend, brother and sister, delight this day as we partake of this meal Remember that what we're thinking about is Jesus giving his body and Jesus shedding his blood. It's not your body that was given. It was not your blood that was shed. It was Jesus' body and his blood given for you. And that is a work of grace. And we delight in that for God's glory and for the good and encouragement of our souls. Let's pray together.